And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is, the governor's quarters. And they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak, and, twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him. Hail, king of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed, and spitting on him, and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they'd mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak, and put his own clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. Have you noticed who the star of chapter 15 is? Yeshua, or you may call him Jesus? No. Simon of Cyrene. The Libyan who carried the cross? No. And it would help if I hadn't misled you, because I should have asked you if you know who the stars are. Who is the action centered around? They. They called. They clothed him. They twisted a crown, and they placed it on his head. They saluted, and they mocked. They struck him with a reed. They spat on him, and they knelt before him. They stripped him and forced clothing back onto his torn flesh. They led him to Golgotha. They compelled Simon to carry the cross. Why the emphasis on others all of a sudden? With very few exceptions, Yeshua has always been the focal point of the narrative. But now he has moved into the background. And it actually began in last week's lesson where... Pilate, the chief priest, and the crowd command most of the attention. It's why I entitled last week's episode, Pilate, Barabbas, and the Pawn. In fact, he hasn't said anything since verse 2 with his quizzical answer to Pilate's question as to whether or not he is the king of the Jews. And we won't hear him again until verse 34. And yet, despite Yeshua fading somewhat into the background, Pilate uttered the phrase King of the Jews three times. Uh, Yeshua is even more damningly contrasted with the uh, violent insurrectionist and murderer who has um, better represented the sort of Messiah they wanted in the first century. A violent Messiah who would destroy their enemies and their taxation and persecution and make Israel great again. They wanted a nationalistic Messiah, not the sort that loves and brings their enemies into the fold. Hi, I'm Tyler Don Rosenquist, and welcome to Character in Context, where I teach the historical and ancient sociological context of Scripture with an eye to developing the character of the Messiah. If you prefer written material, I have like eight weeks worth of blog at theancientbridge.com, as well as my six books available on Amazon, including a four-volume curriculum series dedicated to teaching scriptural context in a way that even kids can understand it, called Context for Kids, and I have two video channels on YouTube with free Bible teachings for both adults and kids. You can find the link for these on my website. Uh, past broadcasts of this program can be found at characterincontext.podbean.com and transcripts can be had for most broadcasts at theancientbridge.com. If you have kids, I have a weekly broadcast where I teach them Bible context in a way that shows them why they can trust God and how he wants to have a relationship with them through the Messiah. And I am 
currently available on every major podcast platform except for Pandora. They take a while to uh, review. All scripture this week. Oh, excuse me. You know what? I've just got... I finished up my garden work, but now the temperature's really increased. <laughs> I'm just... My sinuses are just going nuts. Anyway, all scripture this week comes courtesy of the ESV, the English Standard Version, but you can follow along with whatever Bible you want. A list of all my resources can be found attached to the transcript for part two of this series at theancientbridge.com. Now, as I touched upon earlier, let's pay attention to the focus of the narrative. And the actions of they especially, all right? Because that's who the author of Mark wants us to notice. It's very deliberate. In the past, I have focused heavily on Yeshua and what he is enduring for our sake. And I have other teachings on that, but it's also important to locate ourselves in the narrative. And although we might like to see ourselves as Simon carrying the cross, we have to recognize that he was forced to do it by they, and it isn't exactly a, he, he, you know, he isn't exactly a hero. Uh, although, you know, evidently he was quite well known to the church later, or at least his sons were. Now, Mark has no good guys in this narrative, and so I believe he wants us to see ourselves very clearly as people who are devastatingly in need of the absolute mercy of God. And one other thing, you know, instead of the long stories we're used to throughout the gospel of Mark and the other gospels as well, we're going to see just a bunch of short little blurbs because the author wants us to see everything from now on in terms of absolute chaos it's actually designed this way to produce a sense of powerlessness and anxiety in us as we read it because there is nothing to latch on to before, you know, the scenes change. So let's pick this back up in Mark chapter 15, verse 16. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion. So let's look at some of the Greek words here and the translation choices. Um, side note, you know, the truth is that even though some people think that you can understand everything if you only know the original languages, that's absolutely untrue. It helps, of course, a lot because um, there are words in Greek and Hebrew that don't translate well, at least not without a whole paragraph and a history lesson to accomplish it, which, you know, we can't do here. And, and we can't do it in a Bible translation either. And then there are some words, um, that when we look at how they're trans, they translated the Hebrew into Greek and in the Septuagint, you know, a few hundred years before the time of Yeshua, you know, um, well, I think we can see that um, what the author is trying to say, all right? And, you know, fair warning, I, I didn't notice this in any of my commentaries. I just picked this up this morning as I was looking at the words again, so it may be totally bogus. You know, maybe this is just wishful thinking. And for those who follow my kids program, Context for Kids, you know I love the what-if stories, right? 
Um, but the word translated soldier here is stratiotes. And that word does mean soldier. Okay? It's what we find 26 times in the New Testament. And all but one of those is in the Gospels and Acts. And it's always translated as soldiers in the New Testament, but in the Septuagint, stratiotes is used only once. And that is to translate the sort of killing that comes at the end of a spear. So it was used hundreds of years before Yeshua to translate the killing that comes by way of being pierced. And I find it, you know, no coincidence. I think that's in Isaiah... What is it? Isaiah 35? I didn't write it down here. I'm going to have to add it to the transcript. Um, and, you know, I find it interesting. You know, I f find it no coincidence that is used in the Gospels to labor those who did, in fact, pierce Yeshua. Um, our next word, uh, Aule's, um is going to be translated differently based on where the translator decides the praetorium is located. If they're among those who believe that the praetorium, which is the governor's headquarters, was in or adjacent to Herod's palace, then they will translate Aules as palace or courtyard or hall. But if they believe the praetorium was at the fortress Antonia, which was overlooking the Temple Mount, then they might use courtyard, court, or hall. It's really a judgment call among translators. And always remember that every translation is also an interpretation because the text is never really entirely crystal clear on a lot of stuff. Um, you know, not even in Hebrew and Greek, sorry to say. And even if you do read it in the original languages, you are interpreting it as you read based on what you do and do not know, your experiences, beliefs, agendas, and me too, you know. Um, an objective interpreter is about as real as the, the tooth fairy or uh, an honest politician. <laughs> now, the praetorium uh, is... Um, Actually, you know, that's what we say. In, in Greek, it's uh, praetorium. It is translated as governor's headquarters, which is what it was. So this is just a literal explanation of the word. Uh, spera is translated in several different ways, depending on the specific context, but it always refers to this or that specific division of the Roman army. Battalion, cohort, band that sort of thing. Some are more formal and others are more ad hoc, you know, thrown together on the spot to do this or that. Now, obviously you don't send a whole battalion every time there's something that needs to be done. Sometimes five is more than enough. This is a good example of why we can't simply use all the strong words for a specific lemma and just choose which one we want. It's actually way more complicated than that. Uh, which is why we need people who know context and know linguistics and know the history of words and all that to translate the Bible so that they do as good a job as possible. Um, so let's look at again. Uh, and the soldiers, you know, what soldiers? Uh, the ones who had scourged him right then and there, you know, for the crowd to witness. Um, they took, they took Yeshua inside the praetorium and they called their buddies. 
It says the whole battalion, but this might simply be referring to Pilot's auxiliary escort, which traveled everywhere with him. You know, think bodyguards. I think it's self-evident that there wasn't a group of, you know, a thousand or five hundred inside the palace or even in the courtyard. And this was a festival day and the soldiers were busy trying to keep their eyes out for trouble. And, uh, you know, we're simply meant to understand the uh, context of what is about to happen here. It isn't enough for them to have scourged him brutally, naked, in front of the crowds. Now they are calling in spectators so that they can have some more fun. And if we think we're nothing like this, we're dead wrong. One of the reasons that social media and um, YouTube are so popular is that it gives us the opportunity to live vicariously through those who mercilessly mock, demean, and destroy the lives of others without even an iota of regret because, you know, we're not doing it right. Yeah, we actually are. People enjoy watching other people get hurt, made fun of, made fools of, you know, whatever. You see here that there were perpetrators and an audience. The first action of they is to call spectators to what they are about to do to Yeshua on top of what they had norm had already done. I mean, you know, the truth is that uh, none of these guys wanted to be stationed in Judea, and more than just a few of these guys might have been Samaritans. And of course, they and the Jews hated each other um, with a passion. Verse 17. And they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. So here we have this mockery of a Roman triumph. And do you remember how the triumphal entry wasn't all that triumphant? Because the leaders of the city, the very ones who would be expected to greet their new ruler um, so that everyone didn't die horribly, um, snubbed Yeshua and, when he entered Jerusalem. So let's talk about a triumph and how they're using it to shame him. So unlike the biblical festivals during temple times, where, excuse me, everything was always performed the exact same way because it was a religious ritual, okay? Triumphs could, you know, really vary a lot in what they looked like because they were about honoring a king, uh, an emperor or a general or whoever, you know, after a victorious battle. You know, at least until the time of Augustus, and then all of a sudden, you know, no one <laughs> outside the royal family could be honored in this way. And this was the context of Yeshua's day during the reign of Tiberius, the who was the successor to Augustus. Because there were no set rules for triumphs, they could just do whatever, you know, amused them. And it amused them because, you know, here is this pretender king, rejected by his own priests, who was now at their mercy. Instead of triumphant, he was conquered. Instead of being a judge over his kingdom, which, you know, all kings were, he was judged and condemned himself. I'm going to point out here that the Jews mocked him by abusing him blindfolded and demanding he prophesy as to who was doing it. Um, that's not the context of this mocking because um, the soldiers are mocking him as a failed challenger to Caesar. 
Okay. When we see men in positions of power being relatively unstrained, because, you know, that was the Jewish leadership mocking him um, when they blindfolded him. Um, you know, people who have a lot of power will, and especially on challenged power, will go beyond that which is merely cruel as they become accustomed to that. You know, Roman soldiers were notorious for being incredibly creative before and during executions. Power is incredibly compromising, and they clothed him with a purple robe, um, most certainly Tyrian purple, produced in Lebanon from Murex snails. And I think I will um, link a picture of uh, the different colors in the transcript, and also I'm going to link a transcript or the, the article talking about how power corrupts the brain. Now, a robe like this was very valuable, and Yeshua was bleeding profusely, and um, just having the robe thrown onto his body immediately after having been scourged would have been excruciating, and his reaction certainly would have entertained, you know, the bored, resentful, Jew-hating Roman soldiers. And they twisted together a crown of thorns, probably made of Acanthus syriatus or a date palm, and... I've got a lot of links this week, and I've got links to both of those so you can see them. You know, both of those are just horrifying to think of, and it's very unlikely that the person making it came out unscathed. Um, like I said, I'm linking pictures of both, and especially the uh, palm date thorns, as they were somewhat poisonous, and uh, injuries to those who work with them are not uncommon. Now, the crown would have had thorns on both the inside and outside. And I put crown in quotation marks uh, because it was more likely designed to look like the laurel wreath of a conqueror or the radiate or radiant crowns we see in portraits of Alexander the Great or Roman emperors. Um, with them, it's it was supposed to signify their divine status or the divine status of their father, who was emperor before they were, making them the the divia Phileas, the son of God. And this was the claim of Yeshua to be the son of God, which in their eyes was not possible. If you go look at these pictures, these crowns are pretty impressive and really big, but not twisted. The fronds went upward from the head like solar rays, and especially, you know, later, in later centuries with the Roman cult of Sol Invictus, when that became popular. Um, but during the time of Yeshua, they were patterned after what was worn by Alexander the Great 300 years earlier, the last great world empire before the Roman Empire, and as far as the Romans were aware of anyway, or cared about. Uh, verse 18 and they began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews! And you might be thinking of the salute we see portrayed in movies and modern art. You know, the one begins with the smacking of your right fist against your upper left chest and then extending it like a Nazi salute with the palm down and arm outstretched. But the truth is that salute isn't portrayed in any art or described by anyone of the day. So it's very much an invention of an artist in the late 18th century. Hitler picked it up because the Italian fascists had started using it in 1923. And he saw himself as the leader of a new and better Roman Empire. You know, Hitler used a lot of Roman imagery. 
anyone going back to the 19th century schools here in America would be shocked to see children performing this salute during the Pledge of Allegiance before it was picked up by the fascist groups in the early 20th century, which is, you know, why people place their hands on their hearts now. And and so we have no idea what this salute looked like, but we can imagine that it was the same salute that they would extend towards Caesar, you know, only in mockery. Okay. And, and mocking a defeated Yeshua as the king of a conquered people. You know, that is, they were actually, if they were actually saluting him, you know, because the word is only translated as salute just this once in the gospel of Mark. Other minds, it, otherwise it means to greet someone. However, you know, given the context, it's almost certainly appropriate. Uh, after all, you know, they were going all out with their theatrics. They usually had boring people to torment and execute. So this was a novelty. Now, the Romans' ideas about kingship and authority were not very much different um, than the Jews of Judea and Galilee. You know, kingship and authority were about power and a power was about overcoming your enemies, taking vengeance in order to um, reverse having been shamed. Uh, and, you know, beyond that, humiliating the enemy in order to destroy any memory of him. And really, humiliating your memory was a way for you to overcome any shame that they inflicted on you. Now, do you remember... James and John and what they said they wanted in chapter 10. Of course, this is going, this, this section of scripture is also going to be important next week. Um, this is starting in uh, chapter 10, verse 35. James and John, the sons of Zebedee approached him and said, teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask you. And you know what? <laughs> Anytime anyone ever comes up to you and says that, you just know you're not going to want to do it. It's going to be bad. Um, and so he asked them, what do you want me to do for you? And they answered him, ooh, the they again, allow us to sit at your right and your left in your glory. Well, Jesus said to them, <coughs> excuse me, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism that I am to be baptized? We are able, they told him. Ah, uh, Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and you will be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or left is not mine to give. Instead, it is for those for whom it has been prepared. When the other ten disciples heard this, they began to be indignant with James and John. Because, you know, <laughs> they wish they had asked first. Um, Jesus called them over and said to them, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And those in high positions act as tyrants over them. But it is not so among you. On the contrary, whoever wants to um, become great among you will be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you will be slave to all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. 
Um, I mean, no one wants that kind of king, and certainly not Americans. Name a president, president who has been, you know, anything like Yeshua. All we can do is really comment on how unlike him they all are and were, and some more so than others. You know, Americans do a lot of talking about the price of freedom being violence, but we do not understand how far that attitude is from the first three centuries of the church, where they experienced death and persecution, and even the Gospels are telling these people to expect it. That's what chapter 15 is, really. They had no power until Constantine, and power is quickly addictive, and all of a sudden, we wonder how we ever lived without it, or why anyone would want to. We're a church frightened by its own shadow because we're used to depending on violence instead of on Yahweh. All right, I'll be back in just a few minutes. Welcome back to um, the second half of this week's episode on Mark chapter 15 called The Mockers and the Passersby. And, you know, where do we fit into all this? Because believe it or not, we do fit in because um, as we've been talking about, the main character of much of Mark chapter 15 is they. And, you know, we'll fit ourselves, you'll find ourselves fitting into if not all of it, uh, many of the groups of they's that are here. And we were just talking briefly about how, um, you know, the Jews of that time, they wanted a violent Messiah. They wanted someone more like Barabbas. They didn't want someone who was not going to conquer, punish, shame, humiliate, destroy the Romans who had been oppressing them for so long. They didn't want a king who would bring them into the fold. <clears throat> and, um, you know, we're, we're very much like that ourselves. And especially, uh, since the church gained, um, you know, status under Constantine. And, um, then all of a sudden they had power and with power, you can do violence and violence corrupts. And now we are a violent church and we are terrified at the, uh, thought of not having violence at our disposal to uh, protect ourselves, to achieve our ends. Whereas, you know, for the first how many centuries of the church, it, it was very dangerous and they would die and they would be tortured and they weren't saying, well, we need to get guns. That wasn't the culture. So we got, we have to look very carefully at our culture. Anyway, you know, our attitudes and sins are no different in this area than the ancient Israelites who depended on their own chariots and horses and soldiers on whatever allies they could buy. And yeah, they were given over time and again to their enemies because they were more fearful of Babylon and Assyria than they were of snubbing Yahweh. You know, we do not serve a God who tells us to survive, but to pick up our crosses and die. Would World War I and World War II have even been world wars? If all the Christians refused to take up arms against one another or against the Jews or against anyone, 
The thing is that we have no idea because it didn't happen. America isn't a Christian country and never really has been. Apart from the persecution, oppression, enslavement, and even slaughter of our fellow image bearer humans, our faith is and has always been in our guns and not in our God. And although we can come up with pithy little mantras to um, make it out to be serving God by carrying guns and having as many as possible, the truth is that our faith is very much more in those guns than in God and what he might want us to do instead. And don't get me wrong, my husbands and sons have guns, and I'm not anti-gun, but I am anti-idolatry. And the Second Amendment and guns are most certainly an idol, idols. Uh, just as, as an experiment once, I posted on social media that the Sermon of the Mount was a million times greater than the U.S. Constitution, and that should not have triggered any arguments from believers but it did. Uh, anyway, back to this week's lessons. Uh, I told you that we are they. Uh, verse 19. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And we read this and we're often so focused on what they're doing to Yeshua that we forget he still hasn't said anything since speaking briefly to Pilate. There's nothing more to say. Should he heap abuse on these men who have been reduced to behaving like animals? What about the crowds calling for his crucifixion? They were being manipulated by the chief priests just as they were trapped by their own nationalistic messianic expectations. Um, he'd already spoken judgment on the power players who were behind this. The ones who could even remotely be expected to be you know, just in their dealings with him by right of their priestly office. The others were quite literally sheep without a shepherd. There was absolutely no reason for Yeshua to speak because he had long since resigned himself to Yahweh's rescue plan for humanity. By long since, I mean the night before. Um, as he was praying in Gethsemane, he was the ultimate Passover lamb who would conquer peacefully in his own blood as we see throughout Revelation, remember that there is no lion in Revelation. One reference to a lion, but instead a lamb shows up. A warrior with a sword for a tongue and who is covered in his own blood before the battle even begins. A true king of kings who is a savior instead of a power-hungry butcher, you know, of their dreams and a lot of ours. So we have this mock coronation ceremony where they are striking him on the head with a reed, which could have been anything from a measuring rod to a flogging baton to the pull for uh, a vexillium, which is their military standards. You know, given the setting, a military baton seems most likely as they would all carry one while in the service of Pilate. Um, the spitting seems indicative of a mock anointing of an incoming monarch. And of course, they were on their knees and bowing before him, calling him the king of the Jews. <clears throat> How ironic that, you know, this is the fourth mention of the king of the Jews. How ironic that in the end, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. Um, that's Isaiah 45, 23. Despite how weak he appears here, this actually takes more strength than anyone has ever been required to show. Um, let's look at Isaiah 53, 7. 
He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, and like a sheep before her shearers, he did not open his mouth. Uh, and I haven't spoken of it in quite a while, but remember that Mark is showing Yeshua to be the Yahweh warrior of Isaiah, in addition to the suffering servant of the Lord. And if you guys know this, if um, if you caught my 17-part Isaiah and the Messiah series that I did when, I don't know, two years ago, before I did this, before I did any Mark, um, he is... Uh, you know, the Yahweh warrior of Isaiah is the warrior who conquers our true enemies, the enemies of Israel and the world, and sin and death by taking a fall. Uh, verse 20. And when they mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. Now, we haven't done a Mark and Sandwich in quite a while, but this is one here. Remember that a Mark and Sandwich, you know, in one you have three sections where the two outer sections are related, but where, you know, they both need the middle section of scripture in order to be understood. The mocking of Yeshua as king is finished at this point, And in verse 39, the Saturian will declare him the son of God, Divifilius, um, a title reserved for Caesar. As embarrassed as the Jewish believers in the audience were, as chapter 14 was being read aloud, you know, appalled at the injustice and brutality that their faith was designed to eradicate, and yet this was being perpetrated in the name of maintaining first century Jewish hopes. You know, this would, you know, this part, chapter 15, would be hard for the Roman Gentiles in the audience, and especially those who were citizens and or wealthy and living off the oppression inflicted, inflicted by the empire on the surrounding provinces, including the Syrian province, which in which Judea was located. No one is feeling culturally superior or proud, no matter where or to whom this is being read. They understand full well who they is. They are the crowds. They are the priests. They are the Romans. They are sitting listening to this horrifying injustice and maybe they believe they would have done differently. But when even the 12 have abandoned him to this, you know, indeed, everyone except for a handful of women who can credit themselves with delusions of behaving any better. You know, certainly having all been partakers of the new creation life, many of them would remember full well who they were. And how inured they were to violence and suffering, you know, that the, they'd become accustomed to um, under Roman rule. Okay? Uh, not that it was better anywhere else, mind you. The Romans were just more efficient about it. You know, how about you? I remember who I was. Nothing to be proud of. And I guess they were tired of playing with Yeshua, you know, as though they're pulling legs off a bug or tormenting a trapped animal. And especially since... He wasn't begging or groveling or maybe they were just on a tight schedule or maybe the prosk beam had arrived and they wanted to get it going before it got too hot and the crowds in the street were just too thick and, you know, with everyone being there for the festival. <coughs> they ripped the cloak off of him and put his own clothes back on, which would have been beyond excruciating over his ripped flesh front and back and you know, probably from head to toe. And it says they led him out to crucify him as though it was an afterthought, something casual. 
Um, remember, these vignettes in Mark 15 are very disjointed and chaotic. The other four Gospels go into detail, more detail, but Mark is really going to great lengths to show how chaos has surrounded the servant, the Yahweh warrior, the arm of the Lord. It's as though the entire world of sin, death, and evil has taken over Jerusalem and is determined to kill the Son of God. Because that's exactly what's happening here. There are <coughs> excuse me, no reminders of what Scripture promised about the Messiah. No quotes. Uh, it feels surreal because it is. It feels unbiblical, for lack of a better term. It reads as though God has lost and the forces of evil have won. That there is no hope, you know, in, um, in the reading of this account. And remember, it was the very first gospel written. They didn't have the others with the quotes and the reminders that it will all be good in the end. It's dark and it's frustrating and it would have been terrifying. And they just, take him to be crucified as if they were talk, you know, talking about taking him, gosh, literally anywhere else in the world, as though this was normal. Verse 21, And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. <coughs> now, Yeshua would have been struggling to walk, you know, even without the cross. He's been torn to shreds. There is no way that these soldiers who mocked him so brutally, you know, yeah, they hadn't also probably beaten to him to within an inch of his life. He would have been bleeding. The pain would have been unimaginable. Lugging a crossbeam over his torn flesh, you know, I mean, it would have been difficult for a man who wasn't wounded. Although Yeshua had grown up a laborer, he hadn't been doing physical work for quite some time. And he hadn't eaten or had anything to drink since the night before, nor had he slept. And so they forced a man in the street, Cyrus of Cyrene, to um, carry the crossbeam. Now, Cyrene was a Roman colony in Libya, which was home to many African Jews, hence his name being Simon or Shimon. Quoting Laura Salah Nasrallah, in her book, Archaeology and the Letters of Paul, um, you know, it talks about people being forced into labor by Roman soldiers. And I do not have the book because I just found out about it today while reading a review by Bruce Longnecker, which I will quote from and link in the transcript. Um, an inscription from Galatian Sagalosus. Um, SEG 26, 1392, notably seeks to protect locals against abuses of hospitality by those embedded in Roman imperial systems, e.g. soldiers and imperial post deliverers, a.k.a. messengers. Nasrallah comments, demands upon locals were not a mere inconvenience for those who lived at or near subsistence level. That means survival level, okay? Locals might, in fact, have to leave their ancestral lands to accommodate the expectations of hospitality. Nasrallah proposes that resentment against travelers 
who impose on the indigenous is conjured in Paul's charge against Cephas, Peter, and certain people from James, uh, this is from Galatians 2, 11 to 14, and his charge against those who are currently disrupting the Galatian communities. Um, in Galatians 4, 14. <clears throat> even though Paul admits that even he was an imposition to those whom he addresses. His uh, rhetorical point is that he seeks to act differently from other imposing travelers. So, <coughs> excuse me. This um, inscription from Sagalassos uh, really fills us in on the severe demands that Roman soldiers and messengers could and did place on the local populations. Right before the American Revolution, um, the British soldiers demanded to be lodged and fed for free, so this isn't unique to the Romans or probably any occupying force. Yeshua also addresses this in the Sermon on the Mount when advising people who are compelled to go one mile to go two. And to give to whomever asks, you know, you know, lose your uh, life for the gospel, but not for talking smack to a centurion with a sword and a flail. In actuality, <clears throat> what Simon was forced to do, although profound and difficult and evidently prophetic, since he and his sons are well known among the believers of Rome, it could have been a lot worse, and I'm sure that it often was worse. Occupying soldiers are not likely to be pleasant house guests. Paul worked so that he wouldn't be an imposition on those putting him up in their home. Soldiers did uh, and took whatever they wanted. Now, Unless Simon was originally from Cyrene and had come to live in Judea, it's unlikely that he's coming from the country, countryside or agricultural fields, which agros can mean. Because there's no definite article in front of agros, and by definite article, it's like what we would say the, okay? Um, it, um, it's mean, it's definite. It's not a. A is, you know, <laughs> Could be anything, you know, a field. It's the field. <laughs> um, the, uh, there, because there's no definite article in front of agros in Greek, it simply reads coming in from country and not from the country. So the author might be saying that he'd come in from Libya, his country. Uh, it isn't clear, and, but it is the Passover, you know. Nor does it matter the names of his sons, Alexander being a Greek name and Rufus being a Latin name, meaning red, wouldn't be uncommon for a family from Cyrene, not even a Jewish family. So Rufus might even be the man Paul was greeting in Romans 16.13, and especially since the author of Mark is making it clear that Rufus, son of Simon, is known to them. So I spoke before about the Roman triumph motif, which was essentially a victory parade. And we need to see the journey to the cross in that light, the defeated and mocked king of the Jews being forced to stagger along the roads of Jerusalem during a festival celebrating, you know, their freedom from slavery and the irony couldn't be crueler. You know, he is... The Passover, 
you know, in bondage to Roman occupiers. And another Jew is temporarily enslaved to carry Histaron uh, in um, Latin patibulum. In English, we would call it the crossbeam. It's rather as though uh, Pharaoh's taskmasters are making a mockery of the Jews during their own celebration of freedom. And the soldiers would not have been ignorant about the meaning of the Passover. That was why they were there in town. Um, verse 22, And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. Our final mention of they this week is in them bringing him to Golgotha. And I want to talk about a popular misconception about Golgotha. Yes, it means place of a skull. However, Charles Gordon's 1884 claim to have identified the site that looks somewhat like a skull because of a dream he had is pretty much bogus. Not only was he not the first to notice this site, I mean, it had been noticed decades before, but there is the additional problem that the erosion causing this quote-unquote skullish appearance occurred long after Yeshua's crucifixion. In addition, he has no archaeological education or training, and so his claims probably rank only slightly higher in credibility than the countless relics of the One True Cross on display around the world or many of the other popular tourist sites. Now... <clears throat> Early church fathers and the author of the Gospel of John make it clear that Golgotha wasn't a site, but instead a larger region. And if you recall the scholar from whom we learned about Gethsemane and the wine press cave, Joan Taylor, she has some really fascinating ideas about where the actual crucifixion site was. <clears throat> Not at Gordon's site, certainly, or at the Constantinian-era site known as the Martyrian Basilica. Uh, anyway, she has an online article through biblical, bibliography, biblicalarchaeology.org that is really great, and I will link it in the transcript so you can read it for yourself if you'd like. You know, it isn't like I come up with this stuff that I teach on my own, which is a good thing because it would be pretty awful because I'd be making stuff up. And I've Heard a lot. Too many teach teachings where people have been making stuff up. And when I, I am guessing, I admit it. I tell you guys, maybe like today with the, uh, what was that that I, that I talked about? I can't remember. But anyway, I was, oh, the estratiotes. Yeah. Um, anyway, one of the things that, uh, Dr. Taylor points out, which I was unaware of, is that the whole idea of Yeshua being crucified on a hill is nowhere to be found in the Bible. It's completely traditional. Um, and you might say, but the author says that the centurion saw the temple veil split, and that is incorrect. He said that the centurion was facing Yeshua as he died. Um, John said that the garden tomb, you know, in a garden, was in an area was in the area in which he was crucified, uh, and that's John 19.41. However, if Golgotha is an area and not a small spot, then we have no idea how far apart the crucifixion was from the garden tomb, only that they were in the same region. Now, the interesting thing about the site she chose uh, for both the burial and the crucifixion is that the southeast point um, was situated at the Genoth Gate, 
which intersected the first and second walls um, with um, two roads leading into the city and then splitting into at least three roads. Uh, pilgrims coming into the city from Bethlehem, Hebron, Gaza, Emmaus, and Joppa would have walked right by in full view of Yeshua if he was crucified there. And the site she proposes was not that far from the Praetorium, if it was indeed just north of Herod's palace. Early church fathers held to the concept of Golgotha being a region as well, and Taylor's choice of the entire area as being Golgotha has the added advantage of being on atop a stone, or a, sorry, an Iron Age rock quarry, and if you want an easy way to locate the Iron Age historically, um, it's, uh, it's roughly the same time period as the monarchical age of um, ancient Israel. So from about a hundred years before David to right after the fall of Jerusalem. So obviously a good place for a rock quarry with all the uh, building going on within the boundaries of a much smaller Jerusalem. And a very good and convenient place for executions because of how people were stoned. Namely, they were pushed over a rock cliff or a high spot, and then huge rocks were thrown down onto them from above. Or so claims the Mishnah, all right? It's honestly something I have not delved into that deeply yet. Um, when we get into Acts, we'll look at that more. When we get to the verse, to verse 29 of chapter 15, Mark will say that people passing by were mocking him and no one was going to be going out of their way to pass by a crucified man during a festival for fear of acquiring corpse impurity. So it would have been likely, more likely been on a main thoroughfare and Hebrews 13, 12 tells us that Yeshua was crucified outside the gate. Anyway, running out of time. Um, the article on this is by Joan Taylor, and it's called Golgotha, a reconsideration of the evidence for the site of Jesus's crucifixion and burial. And you thought I was bad with long book titles. Um, and it will be linked in the transcript that goes up on Friday. <sighs> Pretty heavy stuff with today. <laughs>